0: Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom, I'm Brother Gregory and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of God can't hardly be talked about unless you bring up this idea of love, but what's love? I mean if you look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament, both contain information about the Kingdom of God. We talked this morning in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and 3 that the Kingdom of God is at hand It was at hand when Christ arrived. It was at hand before Christ arrived because Christ said to the Pharisees and those people who were in charge of the government of Judea that I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. So they already had the kingdom. They were the kingdom of God at hand. They had had the kingdom of God since the days of Moses. And actually going back to the days of Abraham. Because when Stephen was martyred, he sits there and explains that the kingdom of God has always been here. It was Abraham and Moses and passed down to David and now to Christ. And he was being accused actually of uh, suborning funds from the rightful church of God. I mean, there was the church in the wilderness and there was the church in Judea and there was, of course, I'm using the word church in the wilderness was referring to the Levites and the church, the called out, that's what the word actually means. We should almost always replace the word church with the word called out in order to understand The significance. You don't go to the called out. Actually, you can go to the called out. Why would you go to the called out? And who are the called out? Well, the called out are those that are separate from the world. They're the saints. That's what saints mean, separate from the world. We've gone through all this. And if you haven't been listening to our recordings, you might miss all this. But the reality is Christ was taking the government, the reins of government, away from the Pharisees who were holding the reins of government at the time. There were some Sadducees also in the government. There were some zealots who were also in the government. But generally speaking, the Pharisees kind of had the market cornered at that particular time. And Jesus said he was going to take the government away from you, the kingdom of God, the government of God away from you. And I'm going to appoint it to others who will bear fruit, he says later on. I'm going to appoint it to my little flock. That's his 12 apostles and maybe the 70, which was his Sanhedrin. That's why he had picked 70 because... The Sanhedrin had shortly before this marched out of the meeting place for the Sanhedrin and said that the government was too corrupt. We don't want to have anything to do with it. And they marched out and they said, we're, you know, cause that's the ecclesia that's going to form a new government. Well, all of a sudden John the Baptist is there, Jesus Christ is there, and Jesus picks his own 70, just like Moses picked the first 70, which was the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was not a legislative body like uh parliaments and congresses are today. They don't making law. The law already existed. You know, don't steal, uh don't murder, don't injure your neighbor, don't covet your neighbor's goods. You know, all those are the basic laws, you know, and uh, just keep the sabbath, that was about staying out of debt, work first and then earn your rest. Don't be borrowing your rest from the future. You know, rest in today the and then I owe you labor tomorrow. You know, like everybody's got student loans. They're not keeping the Sabbath that they got student loans. They're borrowing against their future. Of course, everybody else is borrowing against the future, <laughs> which is why the, the whole nation and every other nation I know on the face of the earth is trillions of dollars in debt because they don't keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath is about debt. You know, and so, you know, keep holy the Sabbath and they counting seven days. And as soon as they were doing that in the Bible, in the New Testament, they says, you, you got me worried. You're counting days and, and moons and, and stuff that all my time explaining how the kingdom works is gone to waste. He's worried about that. But I just, you know, I, I mentioned this morning's program that here you go. You got guys changing from Sunday to Sabbath and they think they're righteous now because they keep it on Saturday instead of Sunday. They do what they call worship. They're just as much dead as they ever were before. They don't take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. They send their people to men who exercise authority to do that and those people in their congregations that go to those men who exercise authority are snared. They're made Merchandise. Because the men who exercise authority are engaged in covetous practices of taking away from your neighbor to provide you with benefits, which is the definition of the wages of unrighteousness. And we talked this morning again about Second Corinthians. that They're talking about righteousness. Are we seeking righteousness? And, of course, that's the basics of the gospel. Is that you're supposed to be seeking the government of God, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. It is not righteous to send men to your neighbor's house and force them to contribute so that you can have free education, that somebody will take care of your parents, that you don't have to do aught for your parents, which is what the Corbin, of the Pharisees were all about. And everybody's doing it. That's crazy. And, of course, they're now, you know, if the United States owes trillions of dollars, all the citizens in the United States own uh oath Hundreds of thousands of dollars. And their children will owe that money. And they don't own their land anymore. And they don't own their labor anymore. And they don't own their children anymore. Because they've all become merchandise again through covetous practices. They've eaten at the tables that are a snare. So, anyway, we talked this morning about what that repentance means. But, as I said at the beginning of this show and last week, we were going to talk more about love and explain that. And we, we started out talking, I mentioned a few poems, like the one that you see in Sense and Sensibility, where, which was written long after the book was written. But, is love a fancy or feeling? And of course, right there in the poem itself, it answers, no, it's not. So what is love? So I looked up, just before the show today, I thought, well, I'll look up some definitions of what Love is what people think love is today, you know what's it all about uh, so anyway, I mean basically, the definition is an intense feeling of deep affection. Well, they just said that love is a feeling, and yet the poem back then said, no, love's not a feeling, and it's not a fancy and he also says uh they also defines love as a deep romantic and sexual attachment to someone that's fancy. <laughs> You're passionate about something that they struck your fancy and you're passionate about them. You desire them. But the poem said it's not a feeling or a fancy. Yet the definition, if you Google it, is that it's a feeling and a fancy. So there, when you say love, I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) At least when it's mentioned in the Bible. And so guess what? Then I, I did a little bit more quick search and I came up with the fact That, uh, you know, I look for other articles, and of course if you're looking on Google, they're gonna send you where Google thinks you ought to go. And one of the places they've sent you is to the Huffington Post! What does the Bible really say about love? And so, David Luce, (laughs) who is a contributor for the Huffington Post, he's evidently a a pastor for Mount, uh, what is it, Mount Olive uh, Lutheran Church? I think they got a typo here. I don't think it's that, that's spelt quite right. But anyway, hey, goes in and he talks about, uh, it's very difficult to describe what the Bible means about love. Because of course, when you're reading the Bible, you're reading a translation either from the Hebrew or from the Greek. And there are multiple words in the Hebrew and there's multiple words in the Greek that are translated into the single English word love. Not always translated love, but they are translated love. So what, what love are, are they talking about? Because if they have different words, they're probably symbols for a different idea about love. All love is not the same. You know, my cat loves birds, but his love taketh life away from the birds. So they, anyway, this minister says nevertheless, it may still be useful if, uh, if far from perfect, endeavor to find out what love actually means. I mean, obviously there's eros, which is a romantic or passionate, or even I swear we get the word erotic love. There's philia, which is where we get Philadelphia, a friendship love. That's that kind of love, and then there's uh, agape. And everybody's got a little opinion about agape. And, and the fact is, the word has a number of different forms in the Greek. Agape dominates the New Testament, though. It dominates Corinthians. And it's the love they constantly are talking about. Uh The filial love is this friendship. Well, you know, thieves and robbers have friendship. You know, you can have your buddy burglar. And uh the mafia, they got filial love, friendship love, loyalty love. But agape, which dominates that New Testament, uh, contemporary literature of the Greeks, if you read that and speaking and how they were dealing with the word, you can look at their poetry, and we've done this in our Romans 13 article. Uh, scholars agree that the best, what best captures the meaning of this Christian love is this word agape. There's a number of different definitions for that. For God so loved agape, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Well, one of the problems with that particular statement is what word is world, not just what word is love. Uh, it says a love also is patient. Well, the same word agape is translated charity, and as we pointed out in our study of Corinthians, that Paul says, though you give all your possessions to the poor, everything, to the poor and you have not agape charity you got nothing so how could you be giving all your possessions to the poor but not have charity isn't that what charity is so the word clearly means something different than just charity it certainly isn't the same as eros it certainly isn't the same as philia It's not a fancy, it's not a feeling. And so that's why we read Caldridge's poem and Ogden Nash's poem. And actually there's another poem that talks about love that actually came up in Sense and Sensibility. I think it's Sonnet 116 of the Shakespearean sonnets. And they talk about love and what love is. And he has another... Opinion about it, but what he's talking about when he's talking about love, he's talking about this love that's steadfast. It's not changed, It's not moved when there's movement. movement. Uh, it's it's a commitment. It, it, you know, it's it's steady. You know, he, he compares it to the North Star as a constant, a fixed North Star. Uh, that guides shippers all the time, and of course my daughter's a bit of an astronomer. And when she saw that he was referring to the North Star as a constant, she says, "So well, the North Star is a binary star; it's moving all the time." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, but it, for navigation, it's pretty steady." It says, "Well, as long as you don't count the precession of the planets." Well, yeah, that's over thousands of years. I'm trying to get across the ocean. Yeah, okay, I'm going to use the North Star. So, for the point of view of Shakespeare. The North Star is a constant and he was relating that to the, to this true love, this real love, which is not a fancy or a feeling. Now if you go and you Google the word love, you're going to get that it's either a feeling or a fancy. It is not. It is something more. It is a deeper, deeper, deeper commitment to something that gives life. Because it's not the kind of love that my cat has for birds and fish and all those things. He loves fish too. So understanding what love is, is not something you can really put down into a few definitions. So there's a lot of people that talk about it. And there's a lot of people that have opinions about it. Huffington Post has an opinion, or at least it had somebody writing its opinion about it. And we get a lot of different variables when we're talking about this idea of love. And where we left off last week in talking about this, we mentioned uh, romanticism. And now when you mention romanticism, people are going to think of romantics or something. But what it really was is an artistic, literary, uh, even musical or intellectual movement. That originated in Europe back in the 1800s and the 1850s, the latter part of the 18th century and into the 1850s. And it really wasn't about, you know, like, you know, romance novels or or romance movies or anything like that. But it was actually about a rejection of the rationalism and the religious intellect. It was actually probably more in opposition to Calvinism than anything else. And out of it come other movements like Transcendentalism, which had nothing to do with Transcendental Meditation. That was actually had to do with uh, people like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and, and other philosophers of the time and poets of the time. And we even have an article that Preparing You on Transcendentalism. And you can look that up. It has to, Transcendentalism had more to do with individuals with a, a more personal relationship with God where Calvinism had this uh, included... Well, there's all kinds of Calvinism. There's at least three or four different major views of Calvinism. And uh, I don't agree with hardly any of them. So I guess if you're a Calvinist, you can write me off right away. But one of the things, he he had this belief in predestiny, uh, that each individual is preordained to be whatever they're going to be, that you really don't have any choice. You're just, you know, flesh puppets of God. He decides what you're going to do and then you're stuck. Well, that's not true. And it's not even really a very good interpretation of Calvinism. Because Calvin was all over the place. He wrote over a long period of time. And he wasn't nearly as consistent as he ought to be. And, you know, I never trust anybody who has somebody burned at the stake. And Calvin had people burned at the stake. He actually plotted to get people burned at the stake, to get rid of his competition. And so right away I say there's, there's way too much vanity in Calvin's approach. But to be fair, predestination, there is a form of predestination. And this is what a lot of people don't get. You make a spiritual choice deep down inside you, not in your mind. Your mind is the tree of knowledge. But deep down in your spirit, you make choices. And you may change those choices over a period of time, for lots of different reasons, and I don't, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. The point is that when you choose to be humble, when you choose to be forgiving, when you choose to be obedient to the character of God, the name of God, people say you do this in the name of Jesus. Well, are you really doing it in the character of Jesus? That's the name of Jesus. When you make the choice to follow, really follow Jesus, not intellectually, but really make that commitment where you are willing to be constant to the point of even laying down your life for the real Jesus, not your imagined Jesus, but the real Jesus. The real Jesus is not subject to your opinion of Jesus. He is who he is. And just like God, I am that I am. If you, but a lot of times people are making a commitment to their image of God that they have in their minds. And the, the commitment they make is an intellectual one. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a spiritual commitment that makes a decision outside of your intellect. Pre-intellect. Pre-tree of knowledge. And you, you don't even know where this is for most people. They're, they're not awakened to this part of their being. But when you make a choice in that arena, in that realm of existence, your fate is predestined. Now, if you change that, then your fate is going, it will change too. The point is, is that you don't have a million choices to make every day. You have the choice of eating of the tree of life. Or eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The choice of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the choice to decide for yourself what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. With your intellect, which is where your ego lives, your vanity lives. If you make the choice to eat of the tree of life, you have to eat of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides you. And we talked this morning about Paul was... ...going to go somewhere... ...but he didn't feel right about it... ...and... ...he... ...ended up deciding to go to Macedonia... ...why didn't he feel right about it... ...because... ...and he says... ...because the anointing... ...the Christ... ...the Spirit of God... ...showed me that I was supposed to be somewhere else... ...and it worked out great... ...because he was following the leading of the Holy Spirit... ...in seeking the kingdom... ...that is really your goal is to develop a spiritual compass that will guide you in where you need to go and what you need to do. But in order to obtain that spiritual compass, you have to make a place in your heart for the Holy Spirit. Filio love doesn't do that, because we know these and robbers have filial love. Uh, just giving charity doesn't do that, because just giving charity is not agape. It's not the same kind of love. Certainly passion doesn't do it. You know, you say, well, I love my fiancé or I love my husband. But what kind of love? Do you need them? Do you desire them? That's not agape. That's passion. That's a feeling or a fancy, but that's not the love we're talking about. Now, you may have that other love, too. See, that's the thing is that you can have the passion. You can have the filio love, you can have the the fancy love, but it actually in in all the poems that I read before, they talk about it if you focus on that passion, it commits suicide. It is suicide love. It is destructive to the end. The true love, you know, is long suffering and patient and and sacrificing and all these things. So when people start these movements like Romanticism and they, in reaction to, what was it? The religious intellect, which is where, that's where we get Calvin, is the religious intellect. He's he's not alone in this. There's a lot of other people. But certainly he lacked love because he plotted to have somebody burned at the stake. He tricked them into coming to a town... Where he was liable to get burned at the stake, and then got him to say things that were going to get him burned at the stake, and he got burned at the stake. that's not love. see, Paul wants you to do better he when he scolds you he he's doing it when he's being hard on you, which we see in the in uh, Corinthians, where he talks about you know being heavy. And then being light, uh, the being light is he's not going to be so hard on you and he, he wants others to forgive you, your transgressions. And he also will forgive you and he wants you to do well because that you become the epistle of Paul. That's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians. But we all have these different movements and we get all involved in them and they get complicated and, you know, religions get all these rituals. It's very simple. The kingdom of God is very simple. You have to love God, which is the love life and the giver of life. And therefore you will become a giver of life. And then you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That includes loving your enemy. So anyway, in talking about these Ideas of love and what they are all about. I also was looking up things like liberalism. Well, what is liberalism? It, it was a political philosophy, uh, kind of a worldwide founded on the idea of liberty and equality, uh, which sounds pretty great but uh liberals espouse a wide array of views, and all those- views aren't necessarily about love they they get mixed in with all these other movements and the reason I'm mentioning these movements like liberalism and romanticism and and uh forget what the other ones was i was talking about but uh previously is. Because this shows you the progression of the mind. That if you accept certain ideas as valid, it, your, your mind and your choices and your emotions will go a certain way. Romanticism movement emphasized intense, inspired emotions as an authentic source of aesthetic experience placing a new emphasis on such emotions as apprehension, horror, terror, and awe. But all those emotions, they're of the flesh, and they're of the mind. Because, you know, you can you can watch a horror show and get all worked up, and you're sitting in your house, and it's just a TV show, and you know it's a TV show, but you get all worked up and nervous, and your heart's pounding. Because... It's the images in your mind that are stimulating that. That has nothing to do with the reality. It has to do with your subjectiveness to reality. That love that Coleridge talked about and and even Shakespeare talked about was this unmoved mover kind of love. that It doesn't change. It's constant. It's consistent. Images doesn't alter that... You know, what goes on doesn't change. You know, it gets very cerebral view of love. And from the beginning when we started talking about this love, I said the love that you really want, the agape love of Christ, is a utility. It's not a fancy or a feeling. It's not conjured up with romanticism or liberalism or radicalism that came about during these periods of time, all these isms, that it is much more consistent, much more fundamental. Uh, So, you know, like liberalism, for instance, rejected the prevailing social and political norms of hereditary privilege. Well, what does that mean? You know, like the divine right of kings. And that, you know, a lord or baron, has more rights than a peasant. Fundamentally, the, the peasant has just as much rights. And this is where you get the philosophies that crept in with Americanism and in with the Constitution that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, all this kind of gets mixed up and, you, and that's because you're climbing around in that tree of knowledge. You know... Liberal, you see, I don't like to label people these different things, although this, you know, the words are the symbols of ideas and then you make all these, put all these symbols up and people get all these ideas, but you, you're climbing around in that tree of knowledge. And then you'll get things like uh, radicalism, which emerged in the French Revolution. But, but even radicalism all, uh, changed in the United Kingdom. You know, the charterists were this radicalism. Radicalism sought a political support for a radical reform of the electoral system to widen the franchise, to get more people so they had a right to choose who was going to what, rule over them. Well, the problem is they're trying to figure out who will rule over them. We see people wanting a radical change. They want to get rid of the electoral college. They want to give illegals the right to vote. Uh, they don't want to have ID voting because uh, they say that oppresses the voters. It's nonsense. What they're very clearly trying to do is corner the vote so they can get the power. The problem is is that all these isms create offices of power. Which is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. The the pro, prophecy of the kingdom of God is that God would, you know, the year of jubilee would restore every man to his family and every man to his possessions. I've actually seen people who, uh, you know, who take liberalism so far that they, they know that they they renounce this hereditary privilege, but they even renounce now. Heredity. That you you can't inherit the wealth of your father. You know, that it has to all go back to some sort of collective or something. You know, anybody who believes in even the smallest inheritance tax. You know, somebody who has a lot of money, chances are they were taxed when they made that money. And now you're going to tax them because they died. Death tax. And that's you will accept those ideas once you make this choice between the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. So how do you know when you make this choice between the tree of knowledge and the tree of life? Well, we'll take a break and we'll be right back to Keys to the Kingdom after that break. And uh we'll see you. Where that leads us, uh, where we can go, or how can we take this to another level? Well, welcome back. So, anyway, there's all these other intellectual ideas, like I mentioned, the transcendentalism, which is uh, nothing to do with the Eastern meditations, but it was kind of an idealistic philosophical and social movement that developed in New England around 1836. And, uh, it was in reaction to rationalism also, and it was heavily influenced by that Romanticism, as well as, uh, Platonism and, uh, the Kantian philosophy. Kant, Kantian was from Immanuel Kant, who was trying to rationalize his way to seeing everything, you know, his, uh, he was a very influential Prussian-German philosopher in what they called the Age of Enlightenment and uh, had the doctrine of transcendental idealism. He argued that space, time, and causation are all mere sensibilities. That it's, it's what we perceive through our senses. So he was, he had a particular philosophy and he was pretty famous and then he came up with some new ideas. And, uh, Kant's views can continue to have major influence on contemporary philosophies even today. Uh, but he changed a lot of what he, uh, began to think. I mean, some things were, he, he was a very clever guy, very smart guy. Uh, but he pondered things and he actually, very social guy, but he even got away from that for a while because all of a sudden he was thinking this, that, and, and he wrote, uh, his second critique of practical reason was this metaphysics of morals. And uh, I don't know if I could sum up, you know, he, he had attempted to explain the relationship between reason and human experience and to move beyond the failures of traditional philosophy and metaphysics and try to figure out what was really going on. And of course, nowadays we have... Uh, some people who had studied Kant or think they studied Kant or think they know about Kant coming up with other ideas in quantum physics, such as singularity. What is the common thing that connects all things? So that you can have this, uh, this, you know, if you make a certain choice in a certain realm, it will forever control your destiny. It will take you down a certain path. Well, that that distinctive thing that brings about singularity is enmeshed in this thing we call love, which is utility. If love is utility, if love is a power, if love is a force that is connected to the singularity to all things... When you have love, that force, that creative force of God, that creative power of God will flow through you. It will flow into your children, it will flow into your neighbors, it will flow into your, and the things that you do. It will bring about success where there could have been failure. It will guide you. Don't get on that airplane and then the airplane crashes. You know, I actually know, I've had the experience myself where I couldn't go a certain way and I've seen other people that they say they couldn't go a certain way, they couldn't do a certain thing and had they done it, it would have been a disaster. While other people go oblivious on and they don't see disaster coming. The singularity does not show them that they need to be in Macedonia. It actually is showing them, but they don't see it because they're not connected to the singularity. And that true love connects you to the singularity, this power of God flowing through all things. So the question you should be asking is, how do I make sure that the love I have is the love of God, this love of Christ, this anointed love that giveth life? This was the thing that can't, you know, pondered with his rationalism and his metaphysical look, and he—he he was, you know, it's—it's it's not a bad thing to read some of these people and to study what they have. That and but you need to look at it. It's just like reading the Bible. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible can be a good thing. You need to do it with the Holy Spirit because the when I talk about the Holy Spirit. That's that quantum singularity that connects you to God. Back to that and Why did I mention it? Because it was a reaction to the intellectual religionist, the intellectual approach to religion, and it was more about individual relationship with God. You know, your personal, individual relationship with God. And I hear people all the time talking about, you know, it's about relationships. It's about, but what is that relationship and how do you know you have it? How do you know that the love you are experiencing, the feeling and the fancies that you're experiencing, your desire to go to Macedonia is from God and not from something else? How do you know? How do you measure it? How do you, how does one measure the mind with the mind? How do you measure the unmovable with the movable? Because your mind is subject and tossed often, every you know to and fro with the emotions that are plucked from your being by the world. You know, you can see things that stimulate your emotions. You can hear things that stimulate your emotions. People can come in and push your buttons. But real love is not movable by these things. So how do you know when you're not experiencing real love and you're not being guided by real love? How do you know when your righteousness is righteous? Well, Christ told you a lot of things to do. And in your endeavor to do those things, you will come face to face with the truth about your faith, the truth about your righteousness, the truth about your understanding. Are you tending to the weight of your manners? One of the big sins that we see throughout the Bible is sloth. It's where you don't attend to that which you should be attending to. And one of the things that Christ said, you know, He condemned the Pharisees for not attending to was the weightier matters. And what were the weightier matters? The law, of judgment, mercy, and faith. And it was actually the weightier matter was law. Law includes justice, mercy, and faith. What is faith? Faith is allegiance. When the apostles were martyred and other Christians were martyred, it was because they kept allegiance to that other king, one Jesus. They were being asked to do things like put money you know like I give the example of one bishop who was you know he was well loved because he was a very charitable man, he was an overseer, so that meant he was a minister of ministers of ministers. And so he wasn't a ruler. How you get higher in the kingdom is to be servant of servant of servants. And that same word minister can be translated servant. So he was a minister of minister of ministers and so he was constantly helping all these people out and he was able to help these people out because people donated to him. He didn't want everybody donating to him directly because they were organizing the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So they would... They would donate to their minister, and their minister would donate to his minister, and his minister would donate to his minister, and so eventually the money, the funds would come up to the bishop. It'd be a small portion of what hundreds of people gave, and so it could be a sizable amount, and of course that's the guys, these overseers, these saints, these separate men, would take those funds and give them to people like Paul, when there was a need in Corinth or when there was a need in Ephesus. He would they would send for or need in Jerusalem. They would send foreign aid to these other Christian communities when there was need. And there was need that moved around in the empire from time to time. And there will be need that moves around in the Christian society of today. The problem is that most of the Christian society of today is entirely dependent upon the men who exercise authority, the benefactors who call themselves benefactors, but actually just simply take away from other people. Because the modern church doesn't have a daily ministration, uh, and it does not practice pure religion. So... If you want the love of Christ, if you want to do things in the name of Christ, you have to do what Christ said. Sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and love one another. Take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. You don't want to do that? Then you have no love. You do not have that singularity love of Christ. When Paul went to Ephesus, he found followers of John the Baptist already there. Who knew nothing of Christ. He explained to them who Christ was and that Christ was the king and all this stuff. Because he, Paul again and Peter they're saying there is this other king. Paul when he was on trial with Agrippa and Festus that's what he's talking about. The kingdom of God. And how it eventually was in the hands of Jesus who was the Christ. The Messiah. Whenever they say Christ they're saying Messiah the anointed, the king. And while Paul persecuted those who followed Christ, he eventually realized that Christ was the rightful king and followed and became a minister of Christ. And argues Christ's kingdom before Agrippa and Festus. And they recognize that, yeah, he's right. He's innocent. We can let him go. But You know, most people don't get this because they don't understand, they don't, they barely read the Bible, much less read it in the context of the history of the time. Paul was Romeos and Paul appealed his case to Rome. Now he'd already won his case with Agrippa and Festus. But he appealed his case to Rome. Why in the world would he do that? Even people, Christians came up and said, Paul, why are you doing this? this? This is going to put you in jeopardy. This is dangerous. And they were right. It was dangerous. But Paul knew he had to do it. And because he did it, and everybody around about knew it, all over the Roman Empire, it was kind of news. No judge wanted to rule against a Christian until Paul's case was resolved by the emperor. Because if you ruled against a Christian, and then Paul won his case, you could be liable for deciding the case improperly. Because you decided it against what Caesar decided. So what it did is it gave a reprieve for thousands of Christians who would not be dragged into court by overzealous judges while this case was pending before the emperor of Rome. So Paul was actually saving probably thousands of lives. Certainly saving them from persecution. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He was a lawyer. He knew that by doing that, he was making recompense for all those people that he had persecuted before. And he even talks about it. So you have this idea of love permeating in the sacrifice of Paul to save others that at one time he persecuted. And he knows that in the singularity of the quantum mechanics of the metaphysical realm of God in heaven, he would receive a blessing. And he talks about that in Corinthians. So now, where's your love? How do you know your love is real. You you love your fiancé, you love uh, your uh, spouse. How do you know that love is real? Yeah, you have the feeling, you have the fancy, you have the filio, but how do you know your love is the love that God has for you? Because that's the love you want to have. That's the utility. That will make... The power of God to effect. See, the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the Word of God to none effect. But the Corbin of Christ was making the Word of God to effect. The Corbin of the Pharisees was sacrifice. The Corbin of Christ was sacrifice. What was the difference between the Corbin of Christ and the Corbin of the Pharisees? The Corbin of the Pharisees was forced offerings. The Corbin of Christ was free will offerings, which is what the Old Testament said your Corbin was to be, free will offerings. It was to be that charity. You were to decide to give of your own heart and of your own mind, of your own life, of your own time. You know, we've talked about this, and I don't know, I haven't revisited it very often, the altars of Israel we're led to believe that the altars of Israel are piles of stone and they piled up these stones and they went and got a sheep and they cut its throat and they set it on fire and that made God happy. And we have, you know, sacrifice of sophistry, uh, sophistry in language land, uh, references in our articles on Corbin, our, our articles on altars, altars of stone, altars of clay. These are metaphors. The altars were never supposed to be piles of dead stone. The same word for a gathering of stones is a gathering of friends. These altars were always living altars, always meant to be living altars. Now, yes, some people twisted the meaning and turned them into stone altars, but that's when they unmoored the metaphor from its meaning and purpose. The altars were you look out amongst yourself, find men you trust, And you sacrifice to them and they take care of the needy of your society in the practice of pure religion and according to the perfect law of liberty so that you remain free. That is what the altars were all about. Stoning somebody was supposed to not be hitting them in the head with rocks, but notifying the stones of the altar that this person was acting in an immoral or improper way. You know, supposedly one of the first guys to be stoned, I guess, was somebody who was cutting wood on the Sabbath. It really didn't have anything to do with cutting wood or the seventh day of the week. It had to do with somebody who was starting to, what? If the Sabbath is about death, what was he doing On the Sabbath. What was he doing? Was he creating? And and then what was it to stone him? Was it to hit him in the head with rocks? Or exclude him from the welfare system of Israelites? All the stones would shun him. They would not support him. The same as a woman who is being promiscuous and what happens. She's not going to be supported by the welfare system. What did the world do back in the 60's? Back in Australia, in the United States, and in England, they took the moral criteria out of social welfare. You can remain as immoral as you want to be, and we will still send you a check every month. You can be lazy and promiscuous as you want to be, and we will still send you a check every month. And that's what you know. I just talked about you know some of these polygamists down in. Mexico, I guess there were some of them that were killed recently. And I don't know anything about that particular people. It was a horrible thing that they died. But I know for a fact that groups of those polygamists who live in Mexico, they send their wives and children up regularly to the United States to collect welfare checks and then go down there and use those welfare checks to support them. Muslims are doing the same thing. They'll marry a woman legally, divorce her legally, and she'll have several children, and she'll go on welfare. And he'll marry somebody else, and she'll have children, and divorce her, and she'll go on welfare. They're all still living together at the same house. He has multiple wives. But he, he's not breaking the polygamy laws because he's divorced them. They're just living together still. And they, you know, with the present welfare system, they can get pregnant and have another child and uh, put that child on welfare. Or they get another check for that child. And they're doing this on a regular, to the tunes of millions of dollars on a regular basis. And nobody's policing it because the priests of your religion work for the welfare office. That's your temple where you practice Public religion. If you don't believe that, go go to our website, preparingyou.com, and look up things like public religion. Look up pure religion. Find out what these words meant, what religion meant. You don't know what the word love means. Is your love self-sacrificing? Do do you need your, your love constantly re-stimulated and renewed? Or is it constant, whether it's renewed or not? Do you remain faithful, whether you are reciprocated? I mean, it's easy to love those who love you. What if somebody hates you? Again, go back to the fact that love is utility. The more love, the more of that Singularity, love of Christ that you have for others, the more power you are pushing into the system, the more of the power of God is flowing through you. You're not altering people, but the power of God will alter people. I mean, prayer. I just heard that someone that I know was injured. And I haven't got the details yet. They were injured in a mill accident the power of prayer from somebody who has that singularity love of Christ, that utility love of Christ, can actually bring healing from afar. But the feeling and fancy love, the passion love, that, you know, are you ruled by your passion or are you ruled by Christ in your heart? You know, the, the... The sins of passion, the sins of promiscuity, fornication, adultery, that's evidence that you don't have the singularity love of Christ. The sin is missing the mark. The sin is not plugging into the utility love of Christ. And if you're not plugged into the utility love of Christ, you will end up committing fornication or adultery or uh you will judge, you will be angry, you will blow your top. Uh you will be judgmental. You will not be forgiving. So when these things crop up in your relationship with other people, you know I'm missing it. I am not the connection. You know, I I, I drive a little tiny uh, Ford, uh, oh no, it's actually a Nissan. <laughs> and I go out and check the sheep with it, and the headlights weren't working. So I thought I was gonna need to order new bulbs, and I found out, no, it's just the connections. They were I need to do, fiddle with the wires and make the connections of the very vibrating roads, and we're going across country. It's my little, my little doom buggy kinda out there on the desert. And it helps me get around without spending much money on gas. But, The connections had jiggled loose. If, if you're getting angry, if you're getting impatient, if you're getting judgmental, if you're getting slothful, if you're being unforgiving to anybody, especially your enemies, your connection to the singularity love of Christ is broken. Because you can't help but forgive when Christ is in you. Those who love me will keep my commandments. It doesn't say those who love me will try to keep my commandments. They will keep the commandments. You're predestined to keep the commandments when you really love Him. Adam and Eve were supposed to love God. But they decided to decide for themselves what was good and evil because they didn't really love God enough not to. So they were there was a disconnect. There was a separation. They couldn't even look upon God anymore. They had to hide from God. They fled God. They fled the garden. You're still in the garden. You just have to get back to that connection to the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ said sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, because it's very difficult to do that. It's very easy to get impatient with people and say, oh, I, but I gotta go do this and I gotta go do that, or he doesn't have the perfect doctrine. Again, back to that original thing when romanticism was a rebellion against this religious intellectual doctrine that you're creating. You need to get away from that and get back to the simplicity of the love for one another. It doesn't matter who you sit with. It matters what love flows through you. And that's where you need to go if you're going to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so, if you really want to know what love is, try to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and be faithful to the ways of Christ. And until then, Peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services counseling lectures books and other audio materials please write to his church at summer lake box 10 summer lake oregon 97640 you can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net